Well, um, a couple days ago, my, uh, our, we're, there we go. Came in there. Microphone is on. You can turn me down a little bit there. I'm sure they can hear me. You can talk in a normal volume now. All right. Uh, so, my wife and I were putting our kids down for bed, and, um, um, you know, we send them upstairs and tell them, hey, brush your teeth, you know, get yourself ready for bed, and, uh, you know, as I'm walking upstairs, you know, I have two boys, uh, age seven and five, and they're, like most boys, not, I don't want to call it not listening, but it was, uh, it was listening, but then wrestling at the same time, as they make their way to the bathroom to brush their teeth. And uh, my older son is, of course, you know, wrestling down my younger son, throwing him on the ground, and they're just wrestling, having fun. And then my older son comes out and he says, Levi, you're so gay. And I was like, I was like, wow. I was like, he's seven years old. So kind of, you know, paused for a moment as a father and was like, okay, how do I handle this situation? You know, what do I say? Um, and so after they get done brushing their teeth, I pull my older son aside and, you know, I asked him, Maddox, where did you hear that word? And he says, I heard it from school. And I was like, well, how did you hear that? He's like, well, a kid on the bus called me gay. And I was like, okay, well, why? And he's like, I don't know. I was just sitting there. He was just trying to make fun of me. He's like, it's, it's like funny. And I'm like, no, that, 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 that's not really funny. You shouldn't call people that. And I was like, do you know what that means? He goes, yes, I do. I asked my friends at school and they told me exactly what it means. And he said, and he looks at me with the complete, just straightest face ever. Matter of fact, he goes, that's when a boy marries a boy or a girl marries a girl. And I'm sitting there as a father thinking to myself, at age seven, I don't think I even knew what gay was. Let alone the fact that it just came out so easily. And that it was, you know, a boy marrying a boy. A girl marrying a girl. It was at that level where it just acceptance. Just kind of like, hey, this is, this is just fact of life, dad. You know, and I take that moment and, 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 and teach my son the truth, the biblical truth. You know, not that homosexuality is, you know, is the worst sin ever. No, it's a sin just like any other. You have to love those individuals, but God does have a plan. That's right. And we, walk, we talked about Adam and Eve. We talked about mom and dad. We talked about, you know, his um, uncle and his grandparents and his, you know, and his, and his aunts and just walked through all these different things. And even and Kelly was kind of, she was like, oh, you shouldn't have gone there. I was like, that's how babies are made. She's like, don't start that conversation. <laughs> Okay, fair, fair enough. But you know what? I, 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 was take, I was taken back by that conversation. I was taken back and was kind of like, man, Satan has corrupted our world. Even at age seven, my son, thinking just, this is just part of life. This is just a choice that you have. You know, and I, this sermon is not about same sex, you know, um, um, Attraction or homosexuality. It's not, that, it's not about that at all. You know, it's just about our world and the corruption in general. I mean, you just open up, you Google U.S. crime headlines. This is, this, these were three of the ones that I pulled. This is father killed in front of a son during a Craigslist meetup. He was going to go buy something, gets killed right in front of his son. Man kills wife, then takes kids to school. That was another headline. 
This last one was, was really chilling. It says, a man and son charged with chaining and raping a 13-year-old girl. I'm just like, where is our world going? Then maybe you zoom out and you look at the world and you see what's happening in Syria. You know, uh, estimations are that there's 500,000 people killed over the past five years in that conflict. 500,000. 50,000 of those are children. 50,000 children. And they say that 11 million people have fled that country. 11 million. This is one of the largest exoduses ever recorded in modern human history. Just to put it in perspective, there's 8.3 million living in the state of Virginia. That's as if the state of Virginia and then some just got up and left. They're fleeing for their lives. Now, the world we live in, it's a corrupt place. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to continue on in our, in our study of Genesis. and We're going to read a story that is uh, very, very familiar to most of us. Probably one of the first Bible stories... Most of us has uh, ever ever read, and uh, we got a, we got a lot of, a lot of reading ahead of us. Okay, I'm um, just, just gonna be honest with you. We got three chapters. We're not gonna read all three chapters. We're gonna we're gonna cut it up. But uh, there is gonna be a lot of reading. But amen. It's from the Bible, right? All right. So let's start here in verse five. It says, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made the human beings on earth and that his heart was deeply troubled. Let's stop right there for a second. This idea that, that God says that he was deeply troubled, the closest word that we have to that is he was depressed. Wasn't that he was angry? Necessarily, it wasn't that he was just mad at humans saying, what are you doing? This was a deep pain. This was a depression. God was saying, I don't know what's going on with my creation. I don't know what's happened from the garden to now. What is going on with man? Let's keep reading in verse 7. So the Lord said, I will wipe out from the face of the earth the human race I have created. And with them, the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. And he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Here we see that Noah is described as a righteous, blameless among his people. And he walked faithfully with God. Here we see a man that is described three times as godly, right? Three times now on his own. Righteously between him and God, with others, he was still following God. And what that led to was that he was able to walk with God. Yeah. What an incredible description. If you could have anything in the Bible, that would probably be one that I wouldn't mind having next to my name. In verse um, 11, it says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and it was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become. For all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long. 
50 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make it lower and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring flood waters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. Now here we see we're going to, you know, later on we see that Noah is instructed to bring two of every animal. And seven, of every clean, seven pairs of every clean animal. We know in verse 22 and then also in chapter 7 verse 5 that Noah, incredibly, does everything God commands him. Everything. It just says, Noah obeyed. Noah followed. You know, and how we got to this place is that we have nine generations from Adam. Nine generations from the, from the Garden of Eden. Nine generations from the time that the world was perfect. There was perfect union between man and God and they walked together. But now, as we see in the beginning of chapter, in the beginning of Noah's um, account here, it says that God called the world corrupt three times. Three times. He wants to make sure that we all know that the world has been corrupted. And if you think back, what did God call the world before that when he was creating it? It was good. Constantly, it was good. He created the earth. It was good. He created the oceans. It was good. He created man. It was good. He created the animals. It was good. But now we see a repetition. Instead of good, it has become corrupt. Violence has filled the earth. Only one man and his family that he can find that is righteous. No, God's creation no longer honored him. It no longer honored God. It had become corrupt. And this word corrupt actually means ruined or decay. Decay in the sense that it's slowly dying. It's rotting away. It's been ruined. His God's own good creation. You know, this is a very familiar concept to us, actually, when, when, we, when we think about it. Creating something and it corrupts us. Think of it a lot of popular movies that we watch. Maybe it's just something built inside of us that we just feel. Think about Terminator, right? right. We create robots. What do they do? They get corrupt and they turn around and they kill us. <laughs> right? The violence. I mean, it's, it's right there. You think about other movies, right? How about Matrix? Same thing. They create this robot. It turns on them. They throw them all in those little tanks and they use them for energy. Yeah. Think about even a more recent movie, um, Avengers, Age of Ultron, right? Ultron is supposed to be this perfect being. To help out the human race. And what does it do? It turns on them. Creation becomes corrupted. Very, a very familiar topic for us. You know, and it, I, I think when we read these passages, we can easily look at the world around us. We can look at it and say, okay, yeah, Syria messed up. Yeah, that, you know, murdering your family and then driving your kids to school messed up. You know, what's going on in the schools um, around me and what kids are talking about and learning about? Messed up. Yeah. I can see the corruption in that very easily. And I can somehow point to that and say, yep, that's the reason why the world is corrupt. Yeah, but it says that every, in verse 5, it says that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were evil. You know, here this, what the author's trying to get a cross to us is that it's not the world around us. It's you. It's me. 
That every thought, every action inside of us as man is evil all the time. This idea of heart is not the way that you and I think of our heart as in the organ. It's who we are. It's the inner man. It's the inner being. It's what makes us. That's right. It dictates what we do, what, what we think. It is who we are. And here we see that God is saying it is evil. That is just who we are. It's not everybody else, but it's you. You have corrupted the earth. You have corrupted God's perfect creation. You think about even the thoughts that we have walking around every day. Perhaps thoughts of anger, frustration, or lust as we look at the world around us. And we want things that God says, nope. Maybe it's after your coworker. Maybe it's even you're lusting after that house down the street. Think about even the selfish actions that we, that we do towards others, even those that we love and how we hurt them, knowing, willingly. And even the fact that we are willing to boast about it and do it in broad daylight. You think about the corruption that we have inside of us. And I thought to myself, what if I just wrote down every evil thought that I have? Like, that would be a bit overwhelming. I don't know about you. Yeah, right. yeah. I'm like, well, what if I just wrote down just one area? Let me just pick one area in my life that I feel like, man, without God, what would it look like? How evil would I be in just one area? And I was like, well, let me focus on anger. But what would that look like with my children as I lose my temper? So they disobey again and again. Instead of training them, I go off and I'm yelling at them. Right. This is something that, that I do struggle with personally. It's you know, controlling, controlling my temper. Not being frustrated in the moment with, with my kids or even with my wife. It's funny that the sins that are the most hurtful are the ones that we do to the ones that we love the most, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. But what, what would that list look like throughout my day? What would that list look like for you throughout your day? If you were to, to write down exactly every sin in your heart. You know, the reality of it is, is that we're not products of the world. The world is not corrupting us. In fact, we have corrupted God's good creation. You know, outside of God, man is evil at its core. In you know, Luke chapter 7, you don't, you don't turn there, but Jesus talks about this plainly. He says that sin comes from your heart. It comes from who you are. You know, but unfortunately, the pornography of life has desensitized us. We perhaps walk around every day. You wake up and you don't even notice. You don't even take into account the things that go on inside your mind. The things that the actions that you do or the words that you say. We, we walk around as if this is just who I am. This is just part of the human experience. Comfortable that we live with sin. We've invited it to share in our bed. A lot of times we can be justified comparing it to our neighbors and saying, well, at least I'm not as bad as them. And we live with this sin and it becomes a part of who we are. To the point where we don't even notice. Let's continue reading. Chapter 7, verse 11. It says, In the 600 year of Noah's life, on the seventh day, 
of the second month. On that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth. And the floodgates of the heavens were opened. And rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. On that very day... Uh, well, excuse me. Let's, let, let's get down to verse 17. It says, For forty days the flood kept coming on the earth. And the waters increased. And they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly. Uh, on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that moved along the ground and the birds uh, and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. We'll stop right there. You know, this story, it, it, it starts to take a turn. And, um, you know, like I said in the beginning, this is a story that we're very familiar with. But this is not a cute story. When you think about the reality of the situation, yeah. even yesterday I was talking to my children. They were asking me, what am I going to be preaching about? And I told them Noah and with delight, I said, I know that story, dad. Yeah. That's a great story. A story about the animals going to the boat and then Noah saves and it's just great. And I'm like, yeah. And I, and I turn around and ask them, what happens to the rest of the people? Oh, they all die. Yeah. Like, yeah, the whole earth, it dies. <laughs> I mean, you want to think about the terror and the death toll that was unleashed in this moment. I think too often we get caught up in the details and the science of how did this all happen? How did God make this happen? But the reality is, is that we see that man's heart is judged by God. We see that man, because he is corrupt, because he is evil at his core, because we are evil at our core, is judged. We see a reverse creation. That God lets loose of the chaos that He restrained earlier on and lets the floodwaters go. We see here with judgment that God's judgment is full. It's total. There is no exceptions. Everything is dead, as He calls it. It's precise. It's what God said, when He said, and how it was going to happen. And it's right. We see that God's judgment is correct. That man was evil. Violence filled the earth. And imagine if you were there for a moment. Imagine if you and your family were in your home. You had your, you had your crops all planted. It started raining. You know, probably the first thing you would think of is a little bit of happiness. Wow, I'm going to get some, some rain. It will water the lands. And, you know, God's going to provide more crops for me. The rain keeps going. You know, the ground starts to saturate a little bit more. You start to notice that, you know, this rain is not letting up. This rain continues to fall. You start to notice that the rivers by your, by your home where your wife goes and gets water every morning. The banks start to, the water starts to overflow the banks. And then as you gather your family to pray and to pray to God that, God, can you save us? You look outside and you notice the banks of the river are edging closer and closer to your home. You, along with your neighbors, decide, you know what, we're going to flee. We're going to go to higher ground. We're going to go find a mountain. And you start climbing your way up the mountain, bringing your kids. Your kids not really understanding what is going on. 
along the whole way, you're praying to God, God, please let up, please let up the rain. As you make your way up the mountain, you slowly see your house being covered over by water. And as you're making it up this mountain, you start to notice that the water has hit the edge of the mountain that you're on. And you make your way up further and further to the point where you're at the top of this mountain. And you see the water slowly start to just lap against your leg. And you realize there's nowhere else to go. You hold your children up. You put them on your shoulders so they can take their last breath of air. But then the water closes in over you. And you drown. Along with your neighbors. Along with your family. Nowhere to go. God judges the world. No one says that this is not the final judgment. In fact, there's another judgment waiting to come. And this isn't a popular topic to talk about on Sunday, or even at the dinner table for that matter. But it says in Revelation chapter 20 that Jesus will come back. And He will judge the living and the dead. He will separate the sheep from the goats, the righteous from the unrighteous. And we will be judged by our hearts. We will be judged by who we are. That's right. You know, let's turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3. Come on, Joe. Come on, Joe. <clears throat> Would you mind hitting the first slide? In 2 Peter chapter 3, we'll start in verse 5. This is a passage written about the final judgment. In verse 5 it says, But they deliberately forget, 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 5, But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters, also the, uh, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed by the same word, God's word. The present heavens and the earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And here it's Peter trying to point out the fact that people don't want to hear it. People don't, people don't want to hear about the judgment. They don't, they don't want to hear that they're going to be judged based on their actions, based on their thoughts, based on who they are. And they deliberately forget what God has said about Judgment Day. Now this describes today perfectly, right? We hear a lot about that there is no God. Science has proven that there is no God, right? There is no judgment waiting for you. Or maybe you just have to be a good person. Or there's more than one way. But if we believe in the Bible, we believe in this passages, we will be judged. And it will catch most of us by surprise. You know, um, two days ago, a family friend of ours uh, ended up passing away, Kevin, Kevin Maines. And uh, as a kid, uh, he, he's a, Kevin Maines is a minister out in Los Angeles that my parents worked with uh, growing up. And my brother and I would spend summers over there uh, a lot of times like weeks at a, at a time hanging out swimming in their pool Kevin Maines was uh, 60 years old playing pickleball just fell over heart attack 
tried to revive them. It didn't, didn't work. You know, prayers and fasting of his family and, and, the, and, and the church. Sometimes your time is just, is just up. Sometimes God just calls you. We don't know when the day of judgment is going to be. You don't know when Jesus is going to come back. You don't know the day when you're going to fall over dead. That's right. But there will be a judgment day. And for some of us, we got we to gotta wake up. We got to see our lives for what it actually is. We got to see that the fact that your life has consequences. And God will separate the righteous from the unrighteous and you will be judged. And it won't be with water. It won't be as slow. It will be quick with fire and pain. A lot of times we don't want to acknowledge it. We don't want to say it's going to happen. We want to live our life because we have no fear of God. And we don't want to recognize the truth that is laid out before us. Whether you're a Christian or not. Too often we forget the reality that there is a judgment. There is a consequence for your decisions. Some of us have been running from the truth. Some of us have been running for the truth for a while that we honestly don't really see ourselves as evil. Perhaps you see yourself as the exception to the rule. That you're really not that bad. Maybe the fact that you've been running for a while and you've been coming out here every week, listening to the word, feeling good about yourself, feeling like, man, I did my good thing for the week. If I fall over this week, amen. I went to church on Sunday. I took the communion. I'm good to go. Have you really sat down and looked at the word and evaluated your life? So does, is my life righteous or unrighteous? Am I following God or not following God? Am I in the sheep or am I in the goats? Which one am I? And some of us that are Christians think that we've forgotten this as well. We live our lives as if there are no consequences. In fact, we know later on in Peter, it talks about, or earlier on, it's going to be worse off for those that know the truth. Judgment will be worse for you because you know. I don't know how that looks on Judgment Day. I don't know if there's a special year it's more painful for you. I don't know what that is. I don't know if it's emotional, physical, but it's clear that it says it's going to be worse for you because you know the truth and you've turned your back on it. We got to take a look at our lives. And ask ourselves, are we really following God? You know, yes, I guess in reality this is a fire and brimstone sermon. But I'm not trying to scare you into following God. I'm really not. I'm just trying, I'm just trying to warn you, to get you to wake up to hear the truth. Do we live our lives as, as if judgment was a reality and not a fantasy? We've got to stop ignoring it. We got to help warn others as well. It says there in Second Peter chapter two verse five that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. You better believe from the time that he was instructed to build that ark that he was pleading with his fellow man. Hey, God's judgment's coming. It's going to be here. He he knew it was coming, just like all of us know it's coming. Are we pleading with our neighbors, with our friends, to turn to the Lord to avoid judgments? No, but the story isn't over. Let's continue on. In the verse, in chapter 8, I'll turn back there in Genesis chapter 8. Come on, 
In chapter 8 and verse 1, we're going to skip around a bit here. It says, But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens have been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The waters receded steadily from the earth. And at the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down. And here we see that God, he starts to reel back the chaos that he unleashed once again. We get to see once again that God is the one in control. And that Noah had spent 12 months and 11 days in that ark with all those animals. And if we continue to read on, we see that Noah sends out a raven first and then a dove. Like, maybe you're like me. I've asked myself, why does he send out two birds? Raven is going to go find land. So he tells them the direction that Noah needs to go. The dove, and then he, the raven doesn't come back. The dove will go to land, find out if it's dry, bring back something, he would return back. That's why he sends two of them. I was like, whoa, didn't know that. It was an early navigation tool. It's like, pretty, pretty cool that Noah understood that. All right, here we go. Verse um, 18. It says, so Noah came out together with his sons after the ark had landed on top of this mountain. So Noah's uh, sons came out uh, with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. All the animals and all the creatures that moved along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on the land came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and, um, and taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on them. That's probably why I needed to bring seven of them. The Lord smelled the pleasing um, aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans. Even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. Never again will I destroy all the living creatures as I have done. We see that God saves Noah. He sends them back out into his creation. Back out into the world and says, go populate it once again. Go, create, go make creation good again. Let's skip down to verse 8 in chapter 9. Then God said to Noah... And to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds and the livestock, the wild animals and all of those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on the earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of the flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign, the covenant, this is the sign of the covenant I am I am making between me and you and every living creature with you a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds of the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and you and all the living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind of earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. Now we get to see man's heart. We've established that man's heart is evil, corrupt. But here we get to see God's heart. The fact that God remembers Noah doesn't mean that he remembers him as if he forgot. He's like, oh yeah, there's that boat that's floating on the ocean. I forgot about it. Way to go, Noah. Way to, way to listen. Way to survive. 
That's not what he means. He says he remembers him. He remembers to save him. He remembers that this is the one that I have chosen to save. After the ark lands, they make this covenant. The idea of a covenant is an agreement between a king and his subjects. Between someone holding power and someone wanting to establish some type of relationship with that individual. But here we see that the covenant that God sets up with Noah is very one-sided. I don't know if you notice this, but God doesn't ask for anything in return. In fact, God points out that man still is evil. He still, he points that out. He says, I understand that man is still going to be evil. The exact reason I destroyed the whole world isn't going to change. But I'm not going to do it again. I'm going to create a covenant with you. It's a one-sided, unconditional covenant. Many call this the first covenant of grace. Even though man's heart is still evil. And we know that's symbolized by a rainbow, right? It's one of the first things a lot of us learned how to draw. Roy, Roy G. Viv, right? Very, very popular. Rainbow. It says that's going to be our covenant. I mean, a lot of times we see this and we kind of think, you know, any grade school or any, you know, king, any like little, uh, I almost call it king kids, but uh, like children's ministry. There you go. Children's ministry classes, you're going to see like a rainbow and like a little cute little ark. Noah's head popping out and a giraffe popping out an elephant. They're being nice to each other. And you're like, oh, that's so great. The covenant. You know, perhaps even you yourself have seen a rainbow and you're like, man, I'm glad God doesn't flood the earth anymore. It's amazing. But to the Hebrews, the word rainbow does not mean the same thing to them as it does to us. In fact, it's the word for bow. As in a weapon of war. This is, and God says, I'm going to put this weapon of war of my power in the sky. And this is going to be a link, a reminder for you to understand that heaven will no longer destroy earth. That I will not destroy you even though you are evil. Even though that I carry the capability and the power to destroy you at any point in time, I will not. That's right. So he puts this weapon of war, a bow in the sky for them to be for them to, to remember that covenant between God and man. You know, the flood itself actually is an act of mercy. I know it's, 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 it's difficult for us to see that because we see it as an incredible act of destruction. But in fact, the earth was cleansed by this flood. The word that it uses in verse in chapter 6, verse 7, is the same word that we see in Psalms 51 that I'm sure many of us have read, where it talks about David crying out to God, saying, blot out my transgressions. Wipe them clean. Take away the sin from my, from my heart that stands between you and me. That's exactly what God did. He took the corruption. He wiped it all away. He blotted it out. Man had to be cleansed through death. To start new, to have a new creation. In the first Peter chapter three, verse nineteen. Well, turn that. We'll just read it. And starting in verse twenty, it says, "To those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, in it only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism, that now saves you also." Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
who has gone to heaven and is at God's right hand with the angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Well, this flood shows mercy. Because he saves, he remembers Noah. He saves it. He saves Noah from judgment. Even though the fact that everything is evil on the earth. And the waters of the flood cleanse the earth, just like the waters of baptism. We got to see Preston get baptized last week and really experience and to see that firsthand, the cleansing waters of baptism. But in the same way that the flood brought death, baptism brings death. Death of your sins, death of your old self, to be cleansed, the corruption stripped away. The death of Jesus on the cross. And the baptism is not just a symbol. But in verse 21, I love it because it says that that saves us by His resurrection. By the fact that there is new life. That death is still there, but God remembers us. That God remembers His Son, and through that resurrection, we're able to have new life. So today, guys, God remembers you. In the same way that He remembers Noah, adrift in a corrupt world, He remembers you. He sees your heart. He sees it as evil. Every inclination. But remembers you. The flood. It was judgment. It was man's judgment. The judgment of man later on is Jesus. He's judged for our evil. He's judged for our hearts. We know that this ushers in the covenant of Noah. But later on, Jesus ushers in the new covenant. Again, an unconditional covenant. A covenant of grace that is extended to me and to you. That not only saves us from the waters, the flood waters, but the fires of judgment later to come. Even though at our core, we are evil. God sets us aside and remembers us. God's heart is judgment, but it's also mercy. Mm -hmm. He remembers us. My challenge for us today, guys, is that we take sin and judgment seriously. Because there will be a judgment day. There will be a separation from the righteous and the unrighteous. The world will be cleansed. Again, not by water, but by fire. So let us, as a congregation, as in this room, not be taken by surprise. Thank you. Amen.